Chapter Eleven of the False Faces. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Mattingly. The False Faces by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Eleven. Under the Rose. Vague stupefaction replaced the scowl upon the countenance of the commander. He swayed a hand faltering to his forehead, where dark blood was beginning to well from a cleanly drilled puncture. Then he collapsed completely, falling prone across the raised sill of the bulkhead opening. A convulsive tremor shook savagely his huge frame. Thereafter he was quite still. The report of that one shot had reverberated stunningly within those narrow walls of steel. Momentarily Lanyard looked to see the alarmed anchor watch appear, so too apparently the lieutenant who remained immobile pistol poised in a hand for the moment strangely steady gaze fixed upon the mouth of the alleyway but through a long minute no other sounds were audible than that ceaseless dripping from frames and seams with that muted terrible mouthing of waters on the plates unable either to fathom or forecast the workings of the drink-maddened mentality masked by that rat-like face lanyard waited with a hand covertly grasping the automatic in his pocket. There was no telling. At any moment that murderous mania might veer his way, and he was not content to die, not yet, not in any event by the hand of a decadent little beast of a Bosch. Slowly the arm of the lieutenant dropped, lowering the pistol till its muzzle clattered on the top of the table, a noise that broke the spell upon his senses. He looked down in dull, brutish wonder, and then roused with a gesture of horror let the weapon fall clattering his glance shifted to the body of his commander he started violently backing up against the plates to put all possible distance between himself and his handiwork his lips moved framing phrases at first incoherent presently articulate in part done it at last knew i must soon abruptly he looked up at lanyard bear witness he cried I was provoked beyond human endurance. He insulted me in your presence. Me, that scum. Lanyard said nothing, but met his gaze with a blank, non-committal stare, under which the eyes of the lieutenant wavered and fell. Then, with a start, he realised anew the significance of that still figure at his feet, and tried to shake some of the swagger back into his wretched, fear-wracked being. A good job, he muttered defiantly, and you will stand by me, I know, only there is nothing in that, of course, no justification possible before a court-martial. Even your testimony could not save me. I am done for utterly. He hung his head. Lanyard heard whispered words. Degraded. Dishonour. Firing squad. A chronometer in the central operating compartment told eight bells. With a sharp cry, the lieutenant dropped to his knees. He can't be dead, he shrilled. It is all play-acting, to frighten me. Frantically he sought to turn the body over. Lanyard's hand shot swiftly out, capturing the automatic on the table. With rapid and sure gestures he extracted and pocketed the clip, drew back the breech, ejecting into his palm the one shell in the barrel, and replaced the weapon, all before the Prussian gave over his insane efforts to resurrect the dead. "'He's dead enough,' he announced, eyeing Lanyard morosely. "'Beyond helping. Look here. Are you with me or against me?' Need you ask? 
I count on you, then. Good. I think we can cover this up. He checked and stood for a while, lost in thought. How? Lanyard roused him. Simply enough, I go on deck, send the watch ashore on some trumped-up errand. They suspect nothing, thinking the commander and I have you in charge. If they heard that shot, I will say one of us dropped a bottle of champagne and it exploded. When they are gone, I bring the dory alongside, and with your help, it should be an easy matter to carry this body up, weight it, row it out to the middle of the lagoon, dump it overboard. Then we return. Our story is, the commander followed the anchor watch ashore. If later he wandered off, got lost in the woods in his alcoholic delirium, that is no affair of ours. Do you understand? Perfectly, said Lanyard, with a look of fatuous innocence. But how about the water? Is it deep enough? The Prussian took no pains to dissemble his scorn of this question, seeming so witless. To cover the body? Why, even here there is sufficient depth at low tide for us to submerge completely, barring the periscopes, and it is deeper yet in the middle. Thanks, Lanyard replied meekly. Have another drink? No? The Prussian tossed off half a cupful of undiluted brandy and shuddered. Then stop here. I'll be back in a... half a minute. The lieutenant halted in the act of stepping across the body. Lanyard levelled a hand at the automatic. Do you mind taking that with you? I have no desire to be found here with it and a dead man, should anything prevent your return. With a sickly grimace, the murderer snatched up the weapon, thrust it in its holster, and hurriedly departed. Lanyard watched him pass through the alleyway, and turned toward the companion ladder, then followed quietly. As the lieutenant climbed out on deck, Lanyard ascended to the conning tower and waited there, listening. He could not quite make out what was said, but after a few brusque words of command, two pairs of boots rang on the gangplank and thumped away down the stage. At the same time, Lanyard let himself noiselessly out through the hatch. As soon as his vision grew, reconciled to the change from light to darkness, he discovered the slender figure of the lieutenant skulking on tiptoe after the retreating anchor watch about midway on the landing stage. However, he paused and bent over one of the piles, apparently fumbling with the painter of a small boat moored in the black shadows below. At this, Lanyard began to move along the deck, one by one working the mooring lines clear of their cleats and dropping them gently overboard, till but two were left to hold the U-boat in place. Throughout, he kept watch upon the manoeuvres of the lieutenant, saw him drop over the side of the stage, heard a thump of feet as he landed in a boat, and subsequent creak of oarlocks. The small boat was rounding the bows of the submarine when the adventurer ducked back through the conning tower to hold. He was standing where he had been left when the lieutenant came below. It's all right, this last announced with shabby bravado as he stepped over the body in the doorway. We are rid of that damned watch for a time. They won't return within half an hour at least. I have the dory moored amidships. If we are lively, this dirty job will be over in no time at all. Lanyard nodded. I'm ready. No need to hurry. Plenty of time for one more drink. The Prussian splashed brandy into the cup, filling it to the brim. And God knows I need it. Lanyard watched critically, as with head well back, he drained that staggering dose of raw spirit, gulp by gulp, without once removing the cup from his lips. No mortal man could drink like that and stand up under it. It was now a mere question of time. Hardly that. 
The hand of the murderer shook and wavered widely as he put down the cup. For a moment he swayed with eyes fixed and glazing, features visibly losing plasticity, and then lurched forward, knocking the brandy bottle to the floor, swung around a full half-turn in a blind effort to re-establish equilibrium, fell backward upon the table, and lay racked from head to foot with savage spasms, hand clawing empty air, chest labouring vainly to win sufficient oxygen to combat the poison with which his system was saturated. Moving to his side, Lanyard laid a hand upon the left breast. The man's heart was hammering his ribs with agonising blows, at first rapid, by degrees more slow and feeble. No power on earth could save him now. He had committed suicide as surely as murder. Wasting not another glance or thought upon him, Lanyard hurried aft to the central operating room. The time he had spent there, an hour earlier, was by no means lost in purposeless marvelling. He boasted a certain aptitude for mechanics, perhaps legitimately inherited from that obscure origin of his, largely fostered by the requirements of his craft. Into the bargain he had been privileged ere now to gain some slight insight into the principles of submersible operation. If obliged to work swiftly, and in some instances upon the advice of intuition rather than practical knowledge, he went, not unintelligently, about his task, and made few false moves. Turning first to the diving controls, he adjusted the hydroplanes to their extreme downward inclination, then made the round of the vent valves, opening all wide. With a sharp hissing and whistling, the air from the auxiliary tanks was driven inboard, and as Lanyard manipulated the wheels operating the forward and aft groups of Kingston valves, to the hissing was added the suck and gurgle of water flooding the main and auxiliary ballast and adjusting tanks. Immediately the U-boat began to sink. Lanyard delayed only to close the switches which controlled the electric motors. As their drone gained volume, he grasped the rifle and swarmed up the companion ladder, passing through the conning tower to deck with little or nothing to spare with in fact barely time to throw off the two mooring lines and jump into the small boat, before water, sweeping hungrily up over deck and bridges, began to cascade through conning tower and torpedo hatchways. Constrained to cut the painter, lest the dory be drawn down with the fast-sinking submarine, he fitted oars to locks and put his back to them, swinging the small boat hastily clear of whirlpools, which formed as the waves closed over the spot where the U-boat had rested. From first to last, less than five minutes' activity had been needed for the task of scotching this water moccasin of the salt seas, and putting its keepers at the mercy of the country whose hospitality they had too long abused. Well content, after a little, Lanyard lay on his oars and contemplated with much interest what the night permitted to be visible. The landing stage, no more than a dark, vague mass in the darkness. The land picked out with but few lights mainly at windows of the base buildings, painting dim ribbons upon the polished floor of the lagoon. Methodically, these were eclipsed as a moving figure passed before them. Listening intently, Lanyard could distinguish the slow footfalls of an unsuspecting sentry. No other sounds, more than gentle voices of the night, murmurs of blind wavelets, the plaintive whisper of a little breeze, belated amid the treetops of that dark forest, and a slow, weary soughing of swells upon the distant ocean shore. 
perceiving as yet not the slightest indication of an alarm ashore lanyard ventured to continue rowing but with utmost caution lifting and dipping his blades as gingerly as though they were fashioned of brittle glass and for want of a better guide keeping the stern of the dory square to the shank of the tea-stage in time the bows grounded lightly on sand the melancholy voice of the sea now seemed a heavier sighing in the stillness he pushed off and rowed on parallel with the dark shore so close in that his starboard oar touched bottom at each stroke at intervals he paused and rested striving vainly to garner some clue to his bearings inexorably the blackness forbade that he might have failed ere dawn to grope a way out of that trap had not the disappearance of the submarine been discovered within the hour a sudden clamour rose in the quarter of the landing-stage first one great shout of dismay then two voices bellowing together then others several rifle-shots were fired in the air more lights broke out in windows ashore many feet drummed resoundingly upon the stage and the confusion of voices attained a pitch of wild hysteric uproar of a sudden a flare was lighted and tossed far out upon the bosom of the lagoon surprised by that sharp and merciless blue glare lanyard instinctively shipped oars and picked up the rifle he could see so clearly that huddle of figures upon the head of the landing stage that he confidently apprehended being fired upon at any moment but minutes lengthened and he was not either the germans were looking for bigger game than a dory adrift or the dazzling flare hindered more than aided their vision at length persuaded that he had not been detected lanyard put aside the rifle and resumed the oars now his course was made beautifully clear to him the blue light showed him that outlet to the sea which he sought within a hundred yards distance presently the flare began to wane it was not renewed altogether unseen unsuspected lanyard swung the dory into the breach and drove it seaward with all his might swiftly the lagoon was shut out by narrow closing banks the blue glare died out behind a black profile of rounded dunes lanyard turned the bow eastward rowing broadside to the shore after something more than an hour of this mode of progress he struck in toward the beach disembarked in ankle-deep waters slung the rifle over his shoulder by its strap and pushing the dory off abandoned it to the whim of the sea then again he set his face to the east following the contour of the beach just within the wash of the tide thereby making sure that there should be no trail of footprints in the sand to guide a possible pursuit in the morning the rising sun found him purposefully splashing on weary but enheartened by the discovery that he had left behind the more thickly wooded section of the island presently turning into the dry beach for the first time he climbed to the summit of a dune somewhat higher than its fellows and took observations finding that he had come near to the eastern extremity of the island at some distance to his right a wagon road faintly rutted in sand and overgrown with beach grass struck inland following this at a venture he came at about eight o'clock upon the outskirts of a waterside community before proceeding he hid the magazine rifle in a thicket then made a wide detour and picked up a roadway which entered the village from the north if his disreputable appearance was calculated to excite comment readiness in disbursing money to remedy such shortcomings made amends for lanyard's taciturnity within two hours shaved bathed and inconspicuously dressed 
in a cheap suit of ready-made clothing, he was breakfasting famously upon the plain fare of a commercial tavern. The town, he learned, was the one-time important whaling port of Edgar Town. He would be able to leave for the mainland on a ferry steamer, sailing early in the afternoon. Ten minutes before going abroad, he filed a long telegram in code addressed to the head of the British Secret Service in New York. Consequences manifold and various ensued. When the telegram had been delivered and decoded, both transactions being marked by reasonable promptitude, the head of the British Secret Service in New York called the British Embassy in Washington on the long-distance telephone. Shortly thereafter, an attaché of the British Embassy jumped into a motor-car and had himself driven to one of the cardinal departments of the federal government. When he had kicked his heels in an antechamber for upward of an hour, he was received affably enough by the head of the department, a smug, open-faced gentleman, whose mood was largely preoccupied with illusions of grandeur, who was, in short, interested far more in considering how splendid it was to be himself than in hearing about any mare's nest of a German U-boat base on the south shore of Martha's Vineyard. He was, however, indulgent enough to promise to give the matter his distinguished consideration in due course. He even went so far as to have his secretary make a note of what alleged information this young Englishman had to impart. During the night he chanced to wake up and recall the matter, and concluded that, all things considered, it would do no harm to give the United States Navy a little amusement and exercise, even if it should turn out that the rumour of this submarine base was a canard. So, the next morning, he went to his desk some time before noon, and issued a lot of orders. One of them had to do with the necessity for absolute secrecy. During the day, several minor officials of the department might have been, and indeed were, observed going about their business with painfully tight-lipped expressions. Also, many messages were transmitted by wireless, telephone and telegraph to various persons charged with the defence of the Atlantic coast. Some of these were code messages, some were not. That same night, a great forest fire sprang up on the south shore of Martha's Vineyard, both preceded and accompanied by a series of heavy explosions. The first United States vessel to reach the lagoon found only the charred remains of a landing stage and several buildings, and, at the bottom of the lagoon, an incoherent mass of wreckage, a twisted and shattered chaos of steel plates and framework that might possibly have been a perfectly sound submarine, though sunken, had somebody not been warned in ample time to permit its destruction through the agency of trinitrotoluene, that enormously efficient modern explosive nicknamed by British military and naval experts TNT and by the Germans Trottile. End of chapter 11